0: Hello, and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, in addition to reviewing the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector, I am joined by Simon Barnard, the manager of the Smithson Investment Trust, which is part of Terry Smith's Fundsmith Group, and is coming up later this year for its fifth anniversary since its uh, IPO, when it raised an initial £820 in equity, the biggest launch in investment trust history. We'll be discussing the outlook for global equity markets after what was, for his trust and many other equity trusts, of course, a tough year in 2022. Among others coming up on the podcast shortly will be Simon Edelson of Artemis, the lead manager of Midwine International, and Bruce Stout, who manages Murray International for Aberdeen. Between them, we should get a good picture of what is going on in the global equity markets. For subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle this week, we have a profile of Bailey Gifford Japan, which was run for many years by Sarah Whitley and now by Matthew Brett, which is looking to come back into form after a uh, fairly long fallow period, its growth style having been equally out of favor in Japan as uh, elsewhere in its global investment trust stable. We have our normal full list of all the week's investment trust news with links to the relevant stock exchange announcements, together with a regular table of the biggest price NAV and discount movements, and some commentary from myself and others. The markets this week were mixed with bond yields in both the US and UK rising by around 15 basis points on the back of more hawkish comments from central bankers. The US stock market was down on the week as were the Chinese and Japanese equity markets. But the FTSE 100 continued its strong start to the year, rising uh, 1.5% over the week, and some European markets doing slightly better even than that. The investment trust index we follow, which tracks the performance of the 190-odd trusts that are in the FTSE All Share Index, was flat over the week. Commodities and currencies were broadly unchanged too. Turning to corporate news on the fundraising front, BH Macro, BHMG is the ticker for the sterling class which invests in hedge fund manager Brevan Howard's master fund and had a stellar year in 2022 while everything else was falling, announced that it has raised 315 million through its recently announced placing. That's about an extra 20% of equity for the trust. The shares which were being issued at 431.5p per share started trading on Wednesday and finished the week up around 2% at 444p, a 3.5% premium to the most recent NAV. On a less positive note, just as it seemed it could not get worse, there was more bad news from Home REIT, the troubled homeless accommodation property trust, whose board came out to say, amidst a long list of negative developments, A, that its two brokers had resigned unexpectedly, including Jeffries, who were only appointed to the job three months ago. B, that despite categorically reiterating just back in December that allegations about problems with its rent collection were without foundation, it's now discovered that only 23% of its rents have been collected in the quarter ending in November. And C, that it was now considering putting itself up for sale and has already had a potential cash bid approach from a company called Blue Star, founded by a former employee of its fund manager, Alvarium. We won't know for a week or two whether that materializes or what other sale or realization options may be open to the trust. Essentially, though, it does seem clear that this is the end of the road for Home REIT. uh, And the main question for shareholders is how much, or rather how little, perhaps, they will be able to realize for their shares which was suspended on January the 3rd at 38p, which is down 62% from the IPO price and 67% from its most recent placing price, uh, which was only last year. Whilst credit must be given to the short sellers who first exposed some of the problems of this trust, some serious questions will have to be asked about how Home REIT could raise so much money, more than 850 million from an IPO and two subsequent placings, the last of those just 7 months ago and yet seemingly fall apart in such a short time there will clearly be questions to answer for the board the investment advisers and the brokers involved and unfortunately i fear some potential collateral reputational damage to the investment trust sector however worthy the objective and housing the homeless is certainly that this kind of meltdown simply should not happen in a publicly listed vehicle that has so recently gone through an ipo process So, it is an embarrassment for those of us who like to sing the praises of the investment trust structure. Of course, this is an unusual outcome, it's fair to say that, Uh, but in hindsight, will it seem relevant that both the corporate broker, Alvarium Securities, and the investment manager, Alvarium Home REIT advisors, were part of the same group? Was there anything to read into the fact that the two original fund managers at the investment advisor both stood down last year, one for personal reasons and the other for health reasons? What will the valuers and auditors have to say about their performance? We'll have to wait and see. Meanwhile, the Board of Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust, ticker ASCI, not to be confused with its much larger sister trust, Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth Trust, ticker AUSC, said it's to conduct a strategic review, acknowledging that the trust remains too small to be of interest to wealth managers and also trades at a big discount, which is around 19% on the day before the announcement. The next day, we also had an announcement from another Aberdeen-run trust, Shire's Income, which owns 13% of Aberdeen's smaller companies' income. Shire's board disclosing, and unless I've misinterpreted that, sounding rather surprised, I have to say as much, that it had been in discussions for some time with ASCI about a possible transaction, presumably a merger, and is still considering its position. The shares have rallied by more than 10% on the news in anticipation presumably of an impending rollover stroke merger stroke exit option potentially therefore around nav on a more positive note the board of aquila energy efficiency trust ticker awet which has come under fire for how slowly it managed to invest its uh, ipo proceeds now well over a, a year ago since its launch put out an announcement saying in effect we are now well on the way to being fully invested and urging shareholders to vote in favour of the continuation vote that has been brought forward under shareholder pressure to the end of this month. The trust has a target dividend of 5p, which it said in a separate announcement that it expects to be substantially covered by net income. Uh, I'm quoting there. And the shares edged up a couple of percent, but remain on a 20% plus discount. Turning to results, we've had annual results from Brunner, ticker B-U-T, The Global Equity Trust, which, despite losing its former manager, Matthew Tillett, in mid-year last year, ground out a creditable 3% NAV total return in the 12 months to the end of November 2022 against its benchmark's 1.4% gain. It's paying an almost covered dividend of 21.5p and has more than a year's worth of revenue reserves. Also, annual results from Herald, the smaller company's technology trust, ticker HRI, which suffered along with the sector last year, both the technology sector and the smaller companies world. Its annual results showed an NAV total return of minus 22.8%, while the discount, currently 13%, also widened, despite £50 million worth of share buybacks. And annual results too from Riverstone Credit Opportunities, ticker RCOI, a smallish debt fund which recently changed its strategy To focus on lending exclusively to green energy projects, it announced a good-looking full-year 14.8% NAV total return and a $0.09 full-year dividend, including a 1p special dividend, creating uh, an attractive-looking yield. We also had interims from the widely held old Battlehorse City of London Investment Trust, ticker CTY, which produced a 4.5% NAV total return in the six months to the end of November a tad, uh, 0.6% behind its all-share benchmark. The trust, which sits in the UK equity income sector, says it's on course to increase the full-year dividend for the 57th successive year. It tops the list of the AIC's dividend heroes and has been a regular issue of shares in the last 12 months. The current yield is 4.7%. And other interims came from Diversified Income Trust, ticker DIVI, NAV total return down a less impressive 11.8% against a flat benchmark, not a good period for its style and performance. And Brown Advisory, ticker BASC, where the US firm Brown Brothers took over a Jupiter Trust with a similar mandate 11 months ago after its manager retired. Its NAV total return was up 5.8%, slightly ahead of its benchmark. So this week, as I said, I had the chance to catch up with Simon Barnard, who is the manager of the Smithson Investment Trust, part of the Fundsmith Group, and a very substantial investment trust in its own right. It has become since it was launched back in the autumn of 2018. So this year, it'll be coming up to its fifth anniversary. And well, until last year, Simon, the only way was upwards, wasn't it? I mean, everything grew. You managed to issue a lot of shares. The trust performed exceptionally well. And then like most other equity trusts, you got hurt by the sell-off last year. And uh, it's fair to say it probably wasn't your best year. First down year you've had, I think, and uh, total return down around 28% and the share price a little bit more as you move to a discount from a premium. So what started as a very... uh, Nice upward ride has become a little bit choppy last year. How would you describe what happened last year? I mean we know the parameters, the war in Ukraine, the rising interest rates, the inflation fears, and so on. But how did it look from where you were sitting? Was it did it come as a total surprise to you?
1: Hi, Jonathan. Nice
0: to speak with you again. Um
1: yes and no. I mean, I'd say the Biggest impact on our portfolio was the increase in interest rate expectations that we saw during the course of the year. So not just the interest rate themselves, but the way that the market reacted to that and the commentary from the Fed about future interest rate rises as well. Now, it wasn't totally macroeconomically focused in terms of our underperformance. I mean, we've made some mistakes as well, but I'd say overall, the greatest impact was that shift in interest rate expectations.
0: So that had the way that uh, shareholders basically decided to put a price on your shares effectively. And they decided that because interest rates were going up, they were going to mark down the valuation of your trust. Exactly right. Yes. I guess, therefore, I mean, the first thing I guess you might say to investors about that was that we have about 30 companies around the world, global companies there, small in the terms of the global smaller companies universe, but still pretty substantial companies in their own right. What was the experience actually of the operating performance of the companies that you own in general, first of all? Overall, actually quite good. So the vast majority of our companies
1: grew free cash flow last year. But on average, actually, the free cash flow declined slightly because a lot of our companies were building working capital over the course of the year. But if you look at revenues, revenues were up high single digits. If you look at earnings, operating profits were up as an average for the group over the course of the year. In fact, we only had two or three companies that had any fundamental issues last year. And those included Temenos and Fevertree. And I think both issues continue actually. And they are both in our, what I would say, our penalty box. So we're watching them very carefully, but they are slightly different. I mean, Fevertree had a particular issue with inflation in their cost base, particularly in logistics and glass, so packaging materials, while on the flip side, Temenos, which is a banking software company based in Switzerland, are going through a transition to software as a service rather than upfront license payments. And that really has caused a lot of disruption in their P&L. So there's a lot of upfront revenue that they no longer receive. But we also feel that that was somewhat mismanaged. And interestingly, the CEO has just been removed so we are eager to see what changes the new management will make at that company. But like I say, we're watching both very carefully.
0: So could you just quickly run through, you've written a letter to your shareholders this week, or last week rather, I think it was. Could you just run through what the kind of core metrics, the ones that you you know, you focus on, the free cash flow yield, the cash conversion rate, and the margins look like at the, at the end of the year last year? Yeah, the metrics still look extremely strong, and
1: particularly as we
0: also lay out
1: in the letter versus our reference index, the SMID index or smaller mid-cap index. So our returns are substantially above those in the index, um, sort of high 30s compared to the index in the teens. Um, our gross margin also extremely high, around 60% level, almost double that of the index. And operating margins, again, are far superior to the index. So at the end of last year, all those operating metrics, again, look very strong, which we feel demonstrates that we do indeed own very high quality companies relative to the benchmark.
0: So you have stuck to your knitting, which is, of course, what we would expect. You've done what you said you would do. But unfortunately, the markets decided that in the the current macro environment, they weren't going to value those good characteristics you mentioned quite as highly as before. But to be fair, that was a little bit always... uh, a possibility, was it not? Because the absolute level of the valuations in, on your trust have fallen since you started it. Uh, and I recall when um, Terry Smith started Fundsmith, I think the free cash flow yield on his obviously much uh, larger portfolio was around 6% or something like that. And now it's fallen to 3% or somewhere, perhaps yeah, at one point, even a bit less than that. And in your case, I mean, you're trading on a free cash flow yield, I think of around, well, 3%, something like that. Is that yeah,
1: right? 3.3 currently.
0: So that's a pretty rich valuation, even so, isn't it? I mean, in a world of zero interest rates, that would be acceptable. But when we've got interest rates rising and so on, uh, are you not worried there could be a bit more valuation contraction before we're through this particular market cycle?
1: They could, absolutely. But I think what you have to remember is what you're getting for that valuation. And at 3.3% free cash flow yield, it may appear rich for a company of low quality or a company that isn't growing. But bear in mind that our companies are growing on average in double digit levels. So above 10, maybe 11, 12%. And for companies that consistent and the, the important word is consistent, uh, consistent and sustainably grow above 10%, 3.3% yield on our modeling actually is a very attractive valuation. And interestingly, that valuation of 3.3 is pretty much where the portfolio was back when we launched in 2018. Now, clearly, the portfolio is slightly different than when we launched. But if we take today's holdings back to 2018, they were trading at roughly the same level. But interestingly, if we took the old portfolio that we started with, and fast forwarded that to today, it's also trading at a similar level that it was in 2018. So either way you look at it, we are roughly back to 2018 levels.
0: Because I guess what you would say is that you're getting the possibility of future growth in that free cash flow yield. And of course, you're getting the possibility of inflation, pricing power, and so on. These companies can cope with the environment, even if it gets worse. But of course, that's ultimately the decision about how to value you, your trust, and the companies in it is taken by investors collectively. So do you think, uh, I'll put you on the spot here by saying, do you think investors have got it wrong at this point? In other words, have they, uh, have they marked you down too far? That's quite a difficult
1: question to answer without getting into legal difficulties. Clearly, I believe that there is good value in the portfolio and the valuations that we hold them. And ultimately, what we're doing suggests that at all times, we think that other investors have got it wrong in some way. Otherwise, we wouldn't be owning the things that we own at the prices that we do. But the main reason for that tends to be that we are owning companies that we strongly believe over the next five to 10 years, but really beyond, are able to sustain their returns on investment capital, their margins and their free cash flow growth. And so we are ultimately holding them because we believe the market in many ways is too myopic and is assuming either a decline in returns or margins or slowdown in free cash flow growth to a more you know, quote unquote, normal level in the next two to three years, perhaps, whereas we can see the value in that being sustained over the next 10 plus years, that tends to be where we see things different to the market. So it all depends on the time horizon, really, because for a lot of investors, if they only want to own something for one or two years, they are going to have a different view on what is good value and what is not good value. But the fact that we can hold something for 10 years or more means that we can see value sometimes where others cannot.
0: So what do you say then to people who who might come along and say, the world has changed? In other words, we're going to have a period of higher inflation for a while. People disagree about how quickly it will come down. But we are probably not going back to a world of zero interest rates anytime soon. And some analysts from that deduce that growth investing, if you like, even quality growth companies like the ones you're buying, won't do as well in the next few years as they have done in the past few years when they've been helped by this big tailwind of low to almost negative interest rates. How do you respond to that?
1: I completely agree they won't do as well. You know, if you look at our last couple of years, 2019 we we're up over 30%, 2020 we we're up over 30%, 2021 we're up 20% nearly, you know, we're not going to repeat that. That's categorically the case. So I can wholeheartedly agree that they won't do as well as they did in the last three years. But, you know, what is acceptable? I am firmly of the belief that the transition from obviously too low interest rates at close to zero throughout the course of 2022 to where we are now, you know, three, four, five, depending on the region, was very painful for growth assets. For the reason that you mentioned earlier, it just means the market marks them down more than slower growing assets. So it's that transition that was very painful. But once we get to a steady state, which we pretty are close to, I think, of that 4 or 5% interest rate, which, by the way, is a normal level of interest rates if you look at the course of history, then I don't see any reason why our companies that continue to grow their free cash flow at double-digit rates over time won't rely more on that growth in free cash flow for their performance going forward then obviously the very difficult year of 2022 when they were marked down for valid reasons. So now that we're at potentially a steady state, or you know if we get lucky, a pivot from the Fed or others into low interest rates, well, then that would be a small boost to those growth assets. But let's assume we're at a steady state. I don't see why we can't from this point just move on in a more sort of normal environment. So while it won't be as good as it was over the last three years, I think a high single-digit, low double-digit return from these growth assets is perfectly acceptable.
0: And I guess the issue that a number of investors are now worrying about is whether or not we go into recession, and if so, how bad that's going to be. In other words, they're moving on from worrying about inflation to now worrying about what the consequences of bringing it down so fast might be. You would argue, I think, that uh, your company, the kind of companies you own, will fare much better in relative terms during a recession, if that's what we get than a lot of other companies which have more gearing and ropeier balance sheets and and less uh, powerful business models, less uh, competitive moats, if you like. That presumably will be part of what you think may happen. Talking to the companies you do invest in, and okay, you do invest a lot of global companies, you can be looking around the world themselves. What kind of message are you getting from those companies about their ability to withstand what might be coming in terms of either recession or more entrenched inflation? We have been very surprised
1: so far, and we're in the middle of earnings season, where most companies reporting their full year 2022 results. We have been extremely surprised at how positive the guidance has been from these companies for the year ahead. Now, clearly, as I mentioned, their results over the last year have been good, but that's backward looking. But you would have thought even these company managements would be somewhat cautious because everyone is discussing a recession coming in the US and, and we've very closely avoided one in the UK. Europe is in a similar position. Um, so you would thought these management teams, when providing forward guidance, would be more cautious, but they seem to have been guiding to at least flat revenue and growth most of the time. So there is no decline currently forecast by most of our companies. I'm trying to think of even one. Actually, I can think of one, and it's our most cyclical company, which is IPG Photonics. They have forecast a decline in revenue, but just in Q1, they're not talking about the whole year. But others, even cyclical names like uh, A.O. Smith, which is a U.S. water heater and boiler name, which sells into construction industry in the U.S. and water treatment in China. And they are forecasting flat to slightly up sales for the rest of the year. So while we braced ourselves for negative guidance, so far, we haven't had it.
0: Okay. So let's talk about what uh, you actually did with the portfolio last year, because one of the three key messages that uh, you and uh, Terry Smith both put on your documents is uh, don't do anything unless you need to. And yet last year was one which by your standards was one of ferociously high turnover activity in the portfolio. The quoted figure you put in your letter is 48.5%, which sounds an awful lot. But in terms of actual individual stocks, how many stocks did you actually change last year? And... uh, you mentioned earlier you made some mistakes. Were those the cases of mistakes or were they cases of just you finding something better to own or valuation factors?
1: So 48% is an extremely high level for us. In fact, it's double the highest level we'd ever done before. Although I should point out, of course, that 48% still is relatively low compared to the asset management industry. So on average, an active fund in, in asset management would turn over about 60 plus percent. And in a more volatile year like it was last year. So the last one we had, of course, is 2020, the average was more like 86%. So 48% is very high for us, but, but still below the industry average. We sold three companies and we bought three companies. I'm happy to run you through all of them. But what I would pick out from those is in terms of the mistakes that you highlight, I think the mistakes we made were actually ones of not doing enough where valuations at the end of 2021 were very high for a handful of our companies, ones actually that we did start trimming because of their high valuations, which is extremely rare for us because, like I say, with the ability to look at and own these companies for 10 years plus, it's very rare that the valuation gets too far ahead of itself so that we want to trim. But we were on these occasions and therefore I think the mistake we made clearly was not looking at ourselves and thinking deeply enough to force us to think, should we actually be selling these outright? Anyway, those were the main mistakes that I uh, referenced. But in terms of selling the companies that we did, one called Ansys, which is a US software company, which produces software to help designers design new products without actually making physical prototypes. So it's based on an accurate physics engine. That was an extremely good company. And unfortunately for us, uh, we believe has been getting gradually slightly worse over the last three years, insofar as they've been spending a lot of money on very expensive acquisitions, which we think have been necessary to bolster their number one position, which is the reason we liked them in the first place. It's just before we bought them, they weren't doing anywhere near this level of acquisition. Since we did and they have been spending so much. Their returns on investment capital have fallen from around 30% when we bought them to 9% last year. And, and that was slightly beyond the pale for us. So we sold that company mostly because it, it had changed. Another company we sold, though, was Wingstop. And that was based on valuation and in some ways a ramification of the lessons we learned from the end of 2021. So Wingstop, although it did fall at the start of twenty two. It rebounded very strongly and actually doubled over the course of about three months from the summer to the autumn and reached valuation again that we were starting to become uncomfortable with. And instead of just trimming the position, we decided to this time sell out completely. So only time will tell if we were right to do that. But the valuation was such where we really started feeling uncomfortable. So we feel very comfortable with that decision.
0: I mean, what was odd about that one was that you didn't actually own it for very long in the end, did you? I think you only bought it quite recently. It wasn't in your original portfolio and you added it to it. I mean, one thing that struck me looking at your letter was that the companies you got rid of in a number of cases were actually ones that did best the year before. I'm thinking of one or two examples there anyway. Is that an accident of chance, as it were, rather than some kind of uh, general issue around what managements were doing with these companies?
1: No, that's more chance. I mean, um... The only thing that will drive us to make a decision to buy or sell a company, but particularly to sell it once we already own it, there are only a couple of reasons. One is if the management start doing something that we really don't like, like in the case of Ansys, or if the valuations just get to a point where we're too uncomfortable to continue owning it, like in the case of Wingstop. There are no other reasons, really.
0: So tell us about the companies you bought then and uh, why you bought them last year rather than uh, at some other point in time, if they have you know, the kind of characteristics you're looking for. You presumably had them on your radar for a while. Tell us about those uh, particular new buyers you made.
1: Yeah, well, there was a slight theme to a couple of the purchases we made last year. And it goes back to your question on what will the world look like with higher interest rates? Because as always, it's very easy to look in the rearview mirror and see what worked and didn't work in different historic environments. But ultimately, all that truly matters is what's going to work in the future. So you need to be very careful that you're not fighting the last war. And with that in mind, we try to discuss and think carefully about what the world may look like with a steady state of more normal 4% to 5% interest rates and Really the companies that we saw benefiting, we own a couple already were companies that tend to make very frequent small acquisitions, what we call bolt on acquisitions to their core businesses. And so these companies tend to grow organically around three or 4%, but then add another four or 5% on through acquisition every year. And we felt that these companies may stand to benefit if Generally, asset prices were at a lower level than they've been in the past, and particularly if it was harder and more expensive to get hold of credit because these companies generate a lot of cash. They tend to buy these companies out of their own cash reserves and don't utilize a lot of leverage to do so. But they are competing against private equity and other types of companies who are using a lot of leverage. And so when that leverage becomes harder or more expensive to use, it follows that the competition for those assets will be reduced and the higher rates may also ultimately generally lead to a lower asset valuation. So we think those companies may stand to benefit, not immediately because the seller expectations will take some time to adjust. These tend to be private companies rather than public companies. So it is dependent on the private seller's price expectation, but they will adjust over time. And we think that the company's idex and ad tech that we bought, both in that vein, should stand to benefit. The others already in our portfolio are Diploma and Halma.
0: Okay, so this is not a case of diversification, as uh, it was once called uh, these companies. They are generally businesses that are kind of have some kind of relationship to what they're doing already, uh, their kind of core business, are they?
1: Yes, absolutely. And the thing we like about the companies is that they have very small head office, and all of their bought companies and subsidiaries are run by the management teams originally that came with the companies. And so it's a very decentralized operating model. And so a lot of these new acquisitions are fed through by the local management teams who have noticed competitors or other companies with exciting products that they themselves want to add to their own individual subsidiaries. And they request the capital from head office and obviously uh, present and review the capital allocation that's required for that. But it just means that you know, there are a lot of fingers and a lot of pies spread throughout the economy from these individual companies all searching for interesting and exciting new acquisitions, rather than a centralized head office trying to uh, find large acquisitions, which tend to come with more risk.
0: A lot of people are talking at the moment about what's happening to the dollar as well. It's very important you. You invest in global smaller companies, so they operate around the world. What impact does the dollar have on your component companies? It has been very, very strong for a few years, and uh, now it uh, may or may not have turned the corner, but it's certainly been weakest in the last few months. Is a strong dollar generally a tailwind or a headwind for you? And if so, how do you deal with that within the portfolio?
1: It's actually a bit of both. The underlying companies themselves, because we are traditionally we've been just over half US exposed, now we're about half US exposed. So the US dollar is the number one operating currency in our portfolio. And from that perspective, it is a slight headwind when the dollar is very strong for the fundamentals of those US-based companies. But because the Smithson shares are listed in the UK and in pound sterling, the actual translation to the Smithson NAV and share price is a net positive from the strong US dollar.
0: Okay, so in terms of where we might go from here, do you have a view about that or do you hear views on that from the companies you invest in? But you're basically, you're not too worried either way, essentially, is what you're saying. Exactly.
1: It really doesn't impact us either way. And I don't have any view whatsoever about where the US dollar is going to go.
0: So let's talk about the investment trust for a moment. Obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning, the NAV was down 28%. The share price was down 35%. That obviously implies that your shares went to a discount. And instead of being able to issue lots more shares, and the share count has roughly doubled, I think, since you launched just uh, four and a half years ago. You have now been buying back shares. Obviously, buybacks are a board decision, but what is the general policy of the trust and uh, what kind of level of buybacks are you uh, committing yourself to? Or what level of discount are you trying to uh, protect?
1: There's a lot of discussion about the discount in board meetings. And clearly, up until the start of 2022, the trust had traded on a premium pretty much the whole time. So it was never an issue. So, really, there was a lot of learning done at the start of 2022 and a new policy put in place. And ultimately, the board want to continue buying back shares all the time that there is a significant discount. They've not put a number on that. But from my personal perspective, I would definitely class that anything above 5% and probably anything above 2 or 3%. So basically, for the foreseeable future, you should expect a continual repurchase of shares from the board.
0: Right. And is that because that's just a state of mind, a policy you want to, the board wants to adopt, or is it because you believe it has a, has a material impact on the discount? Have you seen that actually happen so far?
1: We haven't seen material impacts on the discount itself. We have seen the discount move, tighten and widen, but really we've observed that that happens during periods of market movement. So clearly when Market participants get a little more sanguine either about the interest rate movement or recession ahead. We tend to see our discount tighten and, uh, and the opposite when participants get a little more concerned, even though our buyback remains consistent throughout both types of periods. So what we're observing is that the market forces tend to swamp the impact of the buyback overall.
0: Right. And of course, I suppose in that sense, when you do have a bad market like we had last year, the fact that you're such a large investment trust now, you're one of the largest out there in the universe, that tends to be one that uh, if you're an institutional buyer or seller and you react to these short-term movements, then you're more likely to come looking in the direction of a trust like yours than you are to some of these tiny investment trusts that are also trading on very wide discounts but uh, don't have discount control policies. Obviously, 2022 was the first year that, uh, as I said, the share price had fallen over the course of the year. The trust has grown a lot. It's doubled in size since the launch, roughly speaking, in terms of number of shares issued anyway. I have to ask you, because everybody always asks you these things, about the fees that investors pay. You have a tiered fee structure, but uh, do you have any plans to adjust that at all? Again, it's a board decision, but I've not been
1: privy to any discussions in board meetings that, uh, that there are plans to change that.
0: Okay, so looking ahead, in general terms, are there now more things in your universe that look uh, attractive to you than there were? You obviously thought that in one or two cases last year, in terms of shuffling your portfolio. So far, we're only a few weeks into 2023. But do you anticipate or have you any reason to believe that you will be as active again this year as you were last year? No, I mean, I don't think we will be. I, I think last
1: year was, for us, pretty extreme level of turnover. I mean, there are a couple of companies as ever that we've got our eye on and with our finger over the trigger, hoping that they drop to valuation that we will find very attractive. So, you know, it's a good thing if we can buy a couple more of these companies this year at attractive prices. But as we stand today, uh, we're not about
0: to buy something. So in other words, basically, it's business as usual, which is minding the shop rather than going out looking for new sources of supply, if I could put it that way. Do you think that the company is properly understood? We know that, uh, obviously, Terry Smith has to field a lot of comments from investors saying, you know, whether he is in tech or he isn't in tech because he owns positions in large companies that some people think are tech companies and he says aren't. But do you think that the Smithson methodology and the Smithson portfolio is properly understood by investors? Or do you think there's an element of irrationality other than the uh, liquidity concerns and so on or valuation changes that they've made over the last year? Uh, I don't think any of our investors
1: are irrational. But I think that, you know, we try to communicate very clearly. And obviously, we follow the exact same strategy as Fundsmith, uh, which is to buy good companies, try not to overpay for them, and then again, try to do nothing. So I hope that that's clear as well. It is the case that we have a large weighting to what MSCI define as information technology. So if you were to scan our fact sheet, it would look, you know, a bit like FunSmith in the way that we look like we've got a heavy weighting towards technology, but
0: about 38, 40% in, in your letter, you say,
1: yeah. Yes, that's it. Yeah, 38%. But we don't class them all in the same way that MSCI do. So for example, Sabre, which is a US company that connects travel buyers, like travel agents, to travel sellers, like airlines, through a technology backbone. But clearly, their entire revenue and operating profit is dependent on the travel industry. So in our minds, we class that as travel. And interestingly, it is about to be reclassified to travel and leisure by MCI. So that's one plain example. Cognex is another company classed as technology by MCI, but they sell barcode readers, ultimately to logistics, warehouses, and manufacturing automated facilities. To us, again, that is a very industrial type company that is classed as technology by MSCI. So there are several examples of those, which mean that actually, to our minds, we don't have a very heavy information technology waiting. But I think those that look at us uh, at first glance, might be confused about that fact. But I, I think those investors that I speak to that have been with us for some time, this tends to be a very clear subject for them. And then we don't get too many questions on it.
0: So, to wrap up then, Simon, tell me what your kind of chief message to shareholders in this trust would be. I mean, we saw that the shares do exceptionally well. They went up, well, they essentially doubled, I think, in the first uh, four years or so. And now they've come down quite a way. And they've obviously got to make that back up again before they get back to those former heights. What was your core message that you would give to the shareholders of which you have a large number now, obviously, and uh, including private investors? What is your message to that?
1: Well, I used this analogy in the letter, actually. But what I said was, you have to bear in mind that our performance comes and goes with the market. And I likened it to being in a car towed by an erratic driver. So you imagine that The performance of our portfolio is being towed by an erratic market. And so there will be periods where everything goes smoothly and the rope is taut and you're being pulled in a gentle acceleration. But then there's other times when the market slams on the brakes, the rope goes slack and you just drift. And last year was certainly a year of us drifting backwards when the market was putting on the brakes, but. To my mind, if you want to get to that destination of superior long-term returns, it makes sense to still be in the car when the rope snaps back.
0: And to be clear, you are the car rather than the erratic driver. Let's be clear about that. Correct. (laughs) Probably important to put that point in there. Okay, Simon. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been very interesting and helpful as, as always. And I look forward to uh, seeing how you get on this year. And hopefully it'll be, uh, well, a lot better than last year and uh, continuing the recent trend. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan.
1: Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.